Good morning. I got one. Jeff right up front here, solid. I'll try it one more time. Give everybody else a chance. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Good to see you guys. I don't know how many of you have been here the entire time for the uh, book of Revelation. We were studying through that. If you're either new or newer to the church, maybe you don't know um, where exactly we're at or what we're doing, and that's okay. Sometimes we feel the same way, but we're working our way through the book of Revelation, and today um, we're, we're, we're finding ourselves getting towards the end of the book. Uh, and so if you've been with us for a while, you know this. we're already about 20 weeks into this. Uh, and, and it's been a good study, at least for me, for the other pastors, we've really enjoyed this. We felt like we've grown. Um, I think all of us had studied the book, the book before, but we're finding new things, uh, seeing things a little bit differently and, and it's been really good. But when you're in a book like this, it's a long book, one chapter a week. Uh, sometimes at the beginning when we were looking at the different churches, it wasn't even one a week. That's why it's probably over 20 weeks already. Um, and, and sometimes those chapters have been kind of long, right? I mean, it's okay to admit they've been a little long, and some of our sermons even have gotten a little bit up there because it's a lot of verses to get through. So in light of that, today I'm going to take chapters 17 and 18, okay? 17 and 18. And I promise I will do my best to get through it, uh, honoring what God has to say for us, but get through this so that we can hopefully see what is going on here in the book. And then hopefully in the next three or so weeks, we'll finish this up uh, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll surprise you with what we got coming next, partially because we haven't fully decided. So uh, I don't really know exactly what to say on that. But today, uh, there's, there's a pause in the action. And there's a little bit of a, a warning and, and kind of a view, an overview of some things. Uh, and, and I think as a church today, what we're going to see here in the book of Revelation, what's being written about, but also is applicable to us today, is beware the seduction that leads to destruction. Now, your mind might, your mind might wander or race to different places. What exactly is he going to mean? And we'll get there in a moment. Um, and so again, this doesn't advance the timeline. This is another one of those pauses where we're going to look at stuff, uh, as we get towards the end of the, uh, the, the tribulation here. Um, today we're going to gain some understanding in, in some of the areas that John has been writing about, that we've talked about, that we've been moving forward in. Hopefully we'll get a little more understanding as we get ready for these last few chapters. And one of them is the whole idea of the city of Babylon. Again, if you've been here, you've heard us talk about that. Um, there's a lot we don't know about Babylon, but we will at least learn a few important things today. Things I think that are worth noting, tucking in the back of your brain. Uh, and, and we help, we believe that this will help you even living in this day, even if the Lord tarries and doesn't come back during our lifetime, uh, will help you avoid the seduction of Babylon which I think exists even today, even if we're not in the end times, some of the things are very applicable. So one thing we do know is that Babylon sits in direct opposition to the new Jerusalem. We've seen that throughout the book of Revelation. You have Babylon, you have the new Jerusalem, they're opposites. You want to be in the new Jerusalem. You want to follow the new Jerusalem. You don't want to uh, be a slave to Babylon. And so they're very different kingdoms. 
The reality we will see today, uh, though you might not even know it, is that you are a citizen of one of these two camps already. Whether they're literal cities, whether these are kingdoms, whether these are philosophies, they exist today, and, and you're in one of those camps. And, and, and the, the one especially, Babylon, is trying desperately to seduce you, to gain your affection. And we really see that today in John's writing. So let's, let's try to understand how we can battle against that in this day and age and also how it'll play out in the tribulation. And, and let's look into God's word this morning. Now, the reading of the verses alone is about eight and a half minutes. We won't do them all ahead of time like I have sometimes. Uh, so we're just going to take a few verses and, and then kind of break those down and move our way through it. Okay. Does that sound good to you guys this morning? Awesome. So we're going to start in chapter 17, if you have your own Bibles with you. If not, we have it on the screen. We also have some copies of God's Word back there. If you don't own a Bible, I would love for you, not necessarily right now, uh, you're welcome to, but grab a copy of God's Word, make that your own, let it be a gift from, from us to you. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came to me and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have been drunk. Well, what a way to start out chapter 17 here, John. Um, but right after John receives his vision of the final judgments, uh, last week we looked at these seven bowl judgments. He is invited to understand Babylon. So you're like, okay, great. We're going to get the, the description, the understanding, the wisdom that we need. And we are, but there are still a few things that, that there are a couple different interpretations on. And so there's answers, but not all the answers are crystal clear. And so knowing that going in, uh, will, will help us all. Um, here we see that Babylon, she's described as a prostitute. That's the definition that most would not want to describe themselves and how they live. And yet John uses that to describe this philosophy, this thought process, uh, this woman sitting on the back of a beast as a Babel, or as a prostitute. The angel says that she's seated on many waters. Uh, and again, as we looked into this and we read a lot of different authors, uh, and we, you understand where Babel was and what ultimately became Babylon. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, uh, l- later. Um, the idea that this Babel, well, let's just really quick, let's talk about it now. If you remember the, the Tower of Babel, was when God, uh, God had a group of people there, or there were people that wanted to rebel against God. They wanted to be like God. This has happened throughout history. It happened in this, this area that was identified as Babel. And they started building a tower to heaven so that they could be like God. Okay? Again, the same rebellion that Satan used at the beginning of time, he wanted to be like God, uh, is what these people on earth said. And so now we call that city Babylon. The history points towards the same place. They decided they didn't need God. They didn't want God. They didn't want his rule. They didn't need his blessing. They wanted to be like God. Again, sounds a whole lot like Satan in early, uh, in the early times when he rebelled and was kicked out of heaven. 
and, 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 and it sounds like a lot of people living today, if we're honest with ourselves. They don't need God. They don't want God's rules. They don't want to live by God's plan for them. They want what's best for them. They want what feels good to them. So this group of people erected this mighty tower to reach the heavens so they could be like God. Show their power and might and wisdom through building this massive structure towards the heavens. But ultimately, God judged them and put them into their place. Confused their languages so they couldn't even communicate with each other. Well, Babylon in Revelation indicates this same type of thinking. It's this kind of disgusting action, one who wants to rebel against God, put our desires and our wants ahead of what God calls us to do and to be, that, that is, is the rebellion described here in the book of Revelation. It also was in Babel. It rejects God as being the sovereign creator, loving God that he is, his majesty, his justice, his care for us. It rejects all of that. And that's what we see here. This woman described as a prostitute, as Babylon, sitting on the back of the beast. It's all of that encompassed in her. Picking up here, uh, John, is, is the, the revelator, right? He's getting this revelation from God. He's writing it down. He's going to travel in the spirit into the wilderness. Let's look at this here. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So John sees this woman, Babylon, sitting on the scarlet beast. Now, the description of the beast that she's sitting on is a perfect match to the beast or the Antichrist described back in chapter 13. So this is your first week, or if you've missed a few weeks, you got to take our word on it. You're welcome to mark down there in your Bible, go back to 13 to look. This is the same beast, so we're, we're pretty confident of what's going on here. So the, the, the woman, Babylon, is riding on the back of the beast from chapter 13, the Antichrist. Verse 4 describes her vividly, and, and honestly, attractively dressed. I mean, look at this, purple and scarlet. The, these are the, the colors that the rich and the powerful wore. Look what else is there. Gold and jewels and pearls adorn her. And in her hand is this beautiful golden cup. Now, it contains things that aren't beautiful, or at least it shouldn't be beautiful to any of us as new citizens or citizens of the new Jerusalem, because it says it's full of the abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. But she is described beautifully riding the back of this beast. On her forehead was written the name of mystery. Like I said before, we don't know everything about Babylon, uh, and there's still mystery there. Her name, though, is written Babylon the Great, 
mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. We know that John wrote that. And she's described as being drunk on the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. One thing that we can know about Babylon, no matter whether this is an actual city or, or a mindset against God, is that she has set herself against God. She has set herself against Jerusalem, God's people, all of those who are chosen and are part of his family. We see that here. And she persecutes those who have placed their faith in God, their faith in Jesus Christ, those who are living in the new Jerusalem. So again, we've looked at that concept, the idea of if the rapture has taken place, that there will still be people who will come to know the Lord during this time, that then will be martyred because of their faith, because of their belief. And she is drunk on the blood that, uh, that comes from a martyr. She, is, she thrives on the idea of destroying the enemy, anything that's opposed to her and her thought process. When I saw her, John, the disciple, John, the man who laid his head on Jesus' chest at the final supper, the last supper, John, one of the best friends of Jesus, this is what he says, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. John says that he marveled greatly. Uh, I was watching a sermon this week. Matt Chandler preached on Revelation. He went as far to say that John was marveling at her beauty. In this revelation, in this vision he's being given by God, he is marveling at her beauty. And it's not that hard to imagine, is it? Sin is attractive. It it seems like that temporal pleasure we will find, uh, it will be full of happiness and satisfaction. And if I just do this, I know that, that I personally will be pleased, that I will be satisfied. The city of Babylon has many attractions. Again, we're not talking about the physical city. There may be a city that will be tied to it. We've acknowledged that. But just the idea, Satan makes sin look good. He wants you to be uh, seduced by it. He wants you to go after it. And yet, like we all know, when we do and we sin, and we realize that that was it, that it doesn't satisfy us, that it's very empty and it's hollow. It may have many attractions or attractive things or or things that cause us to pause and say, wow, I would like that in my life, but they all lead to destruction. If John is wowed by her beauty, right? The angel's words are 
all the more fitting. Look at what the angel says. Why do you marvel? John has reclined at the table with the Son of God, and he is attracted visually through the beast and the woman, Babylon, riding the back, the pleasures of this world. It it, it makes sense if you think about it. Why do you marvel, the angel says. He says, let me explain to you the mystery of the woman. He describes the beast, right? And it starts out confusing with this, without the context that we've already seen in, in earlier chapters in the book of Revelation. It says, the beast you saw was and is not and is about to rise. And again, so we, we're looking at this outside of the timeline. We're looking at the beast. It's talking about what we've already studied earlier on uh, a few chapters ago. The Antichrist's reign here on earth... You might remember that the Antichrist is going to die. He is going to die, but he will be raised back to life. God is going to give that power for a short season to Satan to raise the Antichrist back to life. We've seen that already. That's what the angel was talking about. So the Antichrist will die. He'll be raised back to life. And that's going to cause the whole world to marvel to see the beast. Imagine with our technology now. Someone rises to power, right? And then is killed and then is resurrected from the dead a few days later. What kind of marvel would be going on from people around the world, right? People are going to see this and they're going to be drawn to this charismatic leader, the Antichrist. They're going to marvel to see the beast. At least most of the world, right? John makes sure he gets this in there. Those whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, Praise God that this kind of seduction, this kind of trickery, this false Christ, this antichrist will not be attractive to those who have placed their faith in the new Jerusalem, which is God, God's plan for us, Jesus Christ, right? And now they're associated with new Jerusalem. Babylon will not attract those people because they will be living in the intense realization that they had been wrong and now they have placed their faith in the one true God. Those names that have not been written in the book of life, though, from the foundation of the world, those who are not believing in God will be very attracted to this. They will marvel to see the beast. Believers will not be fooled by this fake Christ. We have stories from throughout history that when persecution comes to the church, faith deepens. And if you don't have persecution, if you don't challenge yourself with sharing your faith and being the light into this world, it kind of is easy to put your faith in God and then cruise. And yet at this time in history that's going to come, you will not be able to just cruise. So these people who have placed their faith in God, presumably after the rapture, will not be fooled by a faked Christ. Okay, this is a little bit of a long chunk here, but we're going we're gonna to try to read this and get something out of it. Verse 9, this calls for a mind with 
wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does, he must remain only for a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is the eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are able to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb... And the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So that's a lot of information that that happened in those verses there. But as we look in this, keep in mind verse 14, right? As we look through these first few, keep in mind the lamb will conquer. That we know. There's no speculation about what that means, right? The seven heads are described by the angels, both seven mountains and seven kings. The seven mountains would immediately make sense to John's readers here because of Rome. Rome is nestled in, around it is seven mountains. The idea of an empire, a people, a thought process against God's chosen people, Israel, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. So again, we see this picture here. Rome was built up in that area, and there was actually an annual celebration of these seven mountains. So the people of of Jerusalem, of Israel, that read this book, this letter, this revelation that John was given, would immediately identify it with Rome. That Babylon philosophy set against God, set against God's people, right? So it makes sense. But that's not necessarily the complete answer. The reason is that the seven heads are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen is what it says there. And this refers to five past kings and kingdoms, all of which bear resemblance to the kingdom of the Antichrist and the one that he'll ultimately set up. Okay, and one of them, this would be Rome, right? It is, it's happening right now at the time of John's writing. And again, that's why I think he says it's set amongst those seven mountains. It too will bear or did bear the the rebellion, the hatred towards God and his people that the Antichrist kingdom will also represent, right? Caesar was a small a antichrist. He was opposed to Jesus Christ and his followers. It says the other is not yet to come. This one refers to the ultimate kingdom of the antichrist, the one that will be set up. So we have the five, we have the one that is Rome, we have the one that is to come under the antichrist. The reason that he says the Antichrist is the seventh and the eighth is because of the death and resurrection that we just talked about, that we studied a few chapters ago. This miracle is going to be huge, and and he fools the world with it. For those unbelieving people that see this as their leader, see him killed and then resurrected, it will cement most of those people 
right? In their minds, this is the guy, right? Life is going to be great under this guy. Death can't even hold him down. And again, it's the Antichrist sad attempt to replicate what Jesus did for us. We already have a savior who did that, who did that. And he did that under his power. God's power over death and sin and rebellion. And yet, this is what the Antichrist will use to fool the world. So the seventh and the eighth, right? And we've talked about the ten horns previously as well. They seem to be ten kings by which the Antichrist will rule. So he's going to set up a kingdom on earth. We don't know where that is. People will speculate. People will write books. People will make movies. We don't know where it's going to be. We don't. And so it could be anywhere. And, and, and yet he's going to have these ten kings ruling around the world under his power. They're given power and authority by the Antichrist, right? But ultimately it's for a short time. John says one hour, or the angel does to John's revelation. Again, that's not a literal hour, but it's telling you it's for a short season. They're not going to reign for long. And then verse 14, the one I highlighted at the beginning of this slide, talks about the end, the, the, the sixth, the seventh bowls that we preached about last week, the battle of Armageddon, right? The king of the earth will, 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 will join their leader, the Antichrist, right? And then there's going to be this incredible battle. So you got the Antichrist, you got Satan, you got this, this massive battle, you got all the people of the world who have placed their face or their faith in a, in a, in the face of a false Christ, and you'll have the Lamb, right? And the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. John does not want us to be discouraged when we read this. The angel didn't want John to be discouraged. These are the truths. This is what will happen. And don't miss the last words. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. That's us, right? That's you guys. That's me. Anybody who's placed their faith in Jesus. They are with the lamb. We will get to be with Jesus for eternity. What that looks like in the battle of Armageddon, I don't know. So for any of you guys that want to draw a sword and go to battle, I can't tell you that that's 100% going to happen. It could be Jesus and his angels. We don't know for sure what the participation level will be, but we know we are on their side, right? And that's great. It's like going to a Seahawks game. The Seahawks are our team. Well, not for all of you out there, but some of us. Seahawks are our team, but I'm not on the field. I'm not taking a handoff, right, from Geno Smith and running right? I'm not doing that, but I'm in the crowd and I'm cheering. And if there's somebody near me that might be rooting for the other team, I let them know this is my team. That's what we see here. And really this should get us excited because again, revelation is moving us towards a time where evil will be destroyed. And if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, that's the ultimate desire for each one of us. Evil being removed and God in his rightful place on the throne. I don't know. This gets me excited. I hope it gets you excited. 
The other thing to note here from the last sentence, the identity of those who are believers, those of us who are citizens of the new Jerusalem, don't miss this. We are called, uh, we are called, that's God's work. He is calling us unto himself. We are chosen, right? God has chosen us, each one of us. He's drawn you, Holy Spirit has drawn you unto himself. And to know those things, it's so important. And what should our response be to that? That we are a called people? That we are a chosen people? We should be faithful. That's our responsibility. That's our response to what God has done in our hearts and in our lives. And it's not overnight, right? We're going to stumble and fall. But then we need to get up and we need to keep moving forward. This is by the Spirit's power, Holy Spirit living inside of each one of us that have placed our faith in God and his sacrifice of Jesus. And so when we mess up, when we sin, when we fail, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that allows us to get up, receive forgiveness, and move forward. This is great. This is empowering. This is exciting. Let's continue on, though. And the angel, yeah, I gotta keep going here. Gotta keep going. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they are the bee, or, uh, yeah. And the ten horns, where are we at? That you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled and the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Sovereignty, the kings, and the Antichrist are actually going to turn on the city of Babylon at some point. With my mistake in reading there, with tripping over, don't miss this. This is so important, right? Daniel Aiken puts it this way. The woman is the great city, Babylon, in its religious, political, economic, and social system. That's what we've been talking about. Whether there's a base of Babylon or whether it's, it's just this philosophy or this thought process, right? It's going to be pervasive, right? Okay, so he says all these different systems, it refers to a diabolical worldly system. All of these things believed on by anyone who has not placed their faith in God. He continues, Babylon cannot be confined to a city in the past or future, It's going to be wider spread. He says such as Rome or Babylon, Washington or London, Moscow or Beijing. It is a trans-historical system of satanic evil. An extension of ancient Babylon forming an evil world system throughout history and during the tribulation. I know that's a long quote, but I'm telling you, that sums it up. This system is set up across all aspects of life, and it is against God. Religious, political, economic, social. It is against God. A man or a woman doesn't finish with a prostitute and then ask her or him to marry them. No, and we see that here. It's such a weird thing to read, but she is literally used and discarded. 
That is what's being set up here. Satan will discard the system of the world that he used to destroy so many people, to confuse so many people, and he will use that to destroy, and he will destroy her, Babylon, this philosophy. What it says here in verse 18 is that the physical city or this and or this ideology of pleasure, right, and excess has dominion over the kings of the earth, right? This ideology of pleasure and excess and me, myself, and I, and what can I do for me that, 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 that takes people and, and turns their eyes inward, right? It has dominion over the kings of the earth, People only thinking of themselves. What can I do for myself? But this text explains it better than ever. Evil begets evil. Evil devours evil. One satanic system is overtaken by another. And now we see worship of the beast, right? The Antichrist will replace worship of self-indulgence. Of what the system in the world that had been set up. You, you, you. What can you gain? Satan is clever. He's the great manipulator. He always has been. He, he use any means necessary to gain power. Because his main goal is to destroy. And so he wants people to be confused and to not understand and then his timeline will destroy. So when the, the seduction of Babylon has done its dirty deeds and it's done, the duty is done, he will turn on it and he will be done with it. Again, the classic bait and switch. Convince the world that riches, sex, power, drunkenness, all those things will satisfy the thirst of the soul. You don't need a savior you just need to do what your mind tells you to do, what your heart wants. But once he has you on that bait and he pulls hard and that, that hook just hooks into your cheek and he pulls you along, his ultimate goal will be to destroy you. He doesn't love you. When the world has lost herself to Babylon, Satan will destroy her completely. Ultimately, leaving those who loved her, those who bought into that philosophy, with nothing. Which is really, we all know, what they had to begin with. Because sin promises a lot and never delivers. Now, chapter 18, we're getting into that, and it will go quicker. It's a funeral song for a prostitute, okay? So we're going to whip through this thing. It's pretty quick, uh, and, and what we, I still think there's a couple things of value in here that God is trying to show us. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 18, after, I saw, or after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. A haunt for every unclean spirit. A haunt for every unclean bird. A haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxur uh, luxurious living. The angel declares the fall of Babylon. The proud and evil system 
right, of, of lust and debauchery and worldly pleasures and, and messed up priorities, right? That's finished. The new Jerusalem will be a haven of life. Look at Babylon. Babylon's described as becoming a haven for demons, unclean spirits, unclean animals, and beasts. It's fitting that the place that once was empowered by demons is now fit only for demons. She's a wasteland. No one will survive there. And when we look at this, we, we, we got to be reminded in verse 3, it states her seductive sins had enslaved the entire world. Sometimes when I look around at the United States, I feel like there are a lot of seductive sins enslaving the entire world. But sin always comes with a price. And here next comes another voice from heaven. Verse 4, it says, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup that she mixed. Remember, she was holding that cup. This other voice from heaven is not identified, but when Kevin and I were studying this this week and and talking about this, our guess is that this is God the Father or God the Son. Because look, look at the first thing the voice says, come out of her, my people. God, again, his called, his chosen, his faithful, right? Those who are God's people. Those who have come to faith in God in the end times. Now this cry is an urgent one, and and, and I believe that it does even uh, affect us today, to you and me today. Uh, It's something we should heed and listen to. God is calling us out of this world, right? We are in this world, but not of this world, right? John chapter 17. We need to be different. We are called to be different, right? God is calling, thank you. God is calling on you and me today to be different. We are not to take part in her sins lest we share in her plagues. This is applicable. This is for you and for me. That same sermon I was watching earlier uh, this week, Matt Chandler says to his church, give up the notion of being cool. We won't be cool in this world. We are aliens. We are strangers. It's something like that. He said, he's calling on his people. We are different. Now, it doesn't mean we need to be weird. It doesn't mean we can't be liked, that we can't be friends genuinely, with those who aren't saved? No, none of that. But our, our life that we have been called to live will be against what the world says should be the normal. And we have to know that. Because if not, then all of a sudden, what you know and believe from the Bible, from God's word, what he's called you to do, will be in contrast to what the world is saying 
we should do or be like. And then you'll question that and you might even compromise that. We have a completely different worldview, not based on our feelings, our desires, our wants, our needs, perceived usually, right? And and, and it's based on God's word, and so it makes us different. Look at the sins of those around us. They're going to be heaped high, right? And we are called to be different, Again, it doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean we aren't going to sin, right? But our reaction to sin shouldn't be, this is okay. This is what we should be able to do. It should be repentance, a contrite heart. We should move towards being a person that doesn't fall again in that same way. And if we do, we need to get up and by the power of the Holy Spirit, move again down that path towards what God has called us to be. We need to be different. Verse 7. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since her heart, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning, and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Her pride was her downfall. And God's judgment on the proud is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. We're to walk in humility, right? The opposite of this should be true for you and me. We need to be a people who are humble. The humility that we display, the genuine humility, again, not for a show, but it should stick out like a sore thumb in this world, right? In the Babylon thought process and philosophy and way of life and worldview, we should be attractively different. If you know a humble person, that's genuine, they're the greatest people to be around. And that's what we've all called to be. Verse 9, And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Those who benefited from Babylon, the great prostitute, will mourn over her demise. It's funny, really, though. They're not even mourning her. They're mourning what they have lost because they won't be able to use her any longer. This luxury, this sexual immorality, all these things that they gained through Babylon are now gone. And they mourn that loss. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her. Since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, and all kinds of uh, scented wood. All kinds of articles of ivory. All kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, 
iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, pumpkin spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil. I added the one pumpkin spice. But anyways, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves. That is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you. Never to be found. Again, the merchants of wares, of these wares, who gained wealth from her, will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid to waste. So others are sad to see her go because of the money that she made for them. In the book of Revelation, we get to chapter 18, and we see that man's heart desires greed. Right? I'm greedy. I want more. I want money. I want houses. I want cars. I want possessions. Right? I want stuff for me, for me, for me. And look at all these things that are thrown out there as these merchants, these sellers of goods are weeping because the system is now gone that allowed them to make money. Right? They're turning on themselves. Now they'll have to turn to the Antichrist. They're upset that she's gone, this woman, prostitute, Babylon, philosophy, whatever it ends up being, but only because they can't make their money anymore. The amount of money that is made on the backs of people, selfishly, sinfully, is ridiculous. Kevin this week saw that the pornography industry generates $12 billion in annual revenue. A billion dollars a month. It's larger than the combined annual revenues of ABC, NBC, and CBS together. And that was just one thing. We looked up a ton of different things that, you know, the alcohol and bars and all. I mean, this one just jumped out to us on the backs of other people for selfish reasons. There is money being made all around us. And these merchants are afraid that their system has just been taken from them. Let's continue on here. We're getting towards the end. Verse 17 to finish up there. It says, and all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all those who trade, uh, whose the trade is on the sea stirred far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and they wept and they mourned crying out. Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour, she has been laid waste. Finally, those whose jobs were found in her will mourn. Here we see shipmasters, seafaring men, international trade, right? Again, Babylon worldwide, this philosophy, this thought process, this this state of the world that is tied to greed and selfishness. What can I get for myself? After all this morning, though, the people who used the great prostitute and lost everything when she was judged comes a different set of individuals 
with a different opinion of the downfall. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. For God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of a bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. The call here is to rejoice over her, O heaven, right? And you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. From chapter 1, we've seen this impending judgment that was coming that is just and fair and true and will come in the end. God's judgment of Babylon is right. It is appropriate. She cannot give men and women what she promises. Even if you taste it for a moment, even if you have it in your hand for a second, It will disappoint you in the end. There is no lasting joy found in sin. Her demise is something to be celebrated because God will make all wrongs right. Praise God for chapter 18, huh? As we consider this concept of Babylon, there are still many questions that I have in my mind, some of which I probably won't have answered until eternity. In the end days, will there be an actual city, one main Babylon type, or, or, or will it be a rebuilt Rome, or, or does it represent a whole nation possibly? Right? We don't know these things, right? Some people believe that Babylon is just more of that a conceptual thing, like a society, a way of life, an ideology, like we talked about today. And after studying and reading this week, I I think I've come to believe that it's definitely the second, right? That that idea, the, the, the society, ideology, but possibly both. There could be a, a main city or a nation, right? I, I don't know. I believe that Babylon does represent this ideology that is incredibly pervasive already in our world today. I believe it's possibly a place as well. And, and, and so there may be the, uh, a city that rises or a nation that rises. And that the fall of this place will be a sign of the end times. Kevin and I talked a lot this week about just what we see in the United States of America, and we don't know if it will play any part in this other than the ideology that, that will be around the world, I believe, uh, but whether it's going to be in the Mideast or not. But if you look around at the 
United States and you look at what the American dream has been perverted into, right? It fits into this description. Get all that you can as quickly as you can and at the cost of anyone, take care of yourself. Consume, right? The Western way of thinking. At the very least, we're living in a time where our society has all the same trappings of Babylon. Think about it. The society we live in, right, is in excess, right? You want to live in an excessive way, right? Food, alcohol, entertainment, sex, whatever it is, right? Live in excess. The society we live in is based on consumption. The more you get, enjoy it, and when it's gone, get more. The society we live in idolizes celebrities and money, things that are fleeting. The society we live in is, is proud and entitled. How dare you say this against me? The society we live in promises happiness and yet can't deliver. The society we live in seems to be the opposite of what Jesus preached about during the Sermon on the Mount, right? We heard heard what God said through his son, Jesus Christ, of how we should live, how we should act. And yet society says, this is the way you should live or act. Don't let anybody tell you any different. And God, because he loves you so much, he says to you and me, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. Man, thinking back on this chapter, there was a lot that's applicable to you and I today. And I hope the Holy Spirit continues to bring those things to your mind this week. We're called to be different, be holy, find your worth and your pleasure in your relationship with God not in those around you, not in what you can gain around you. Everything, if done properly, finding our worth and our pleasure and our relationship with God, everything else, our relationships and everything that we do gain will look different to us. If you feel like you've spent your whole life looking for something, anything that might make you happy right? Maybe you should look for something that will make you happy or satisfied longer than the 30 seconds that sin typically does, right? And God is the one who's there waiting for you right now. Maybe you haven't placed your faith in God. You're not a Christian. You're here because you're here with a family member or a friend or, or you wandered in this morning. God is waiting for you. He is calling to you. He loves you. Babylon will leave you wanting, but God will fulfill you. Babylon will leave you unsatisfied, but God will satisfy your soul, your longings, your desires. Babylon will continue on with Satan's lie, and he will lie to you, but God is the truth. Babylon is a bait and switch, and yet God always delivers on his promises. Believers, I want us to commit to being different, to being weird, strange, set apart from this world and its thinking. 
So what if instead of falling into excess, we were a a people of moderation or abstinence? What if instead of consuming, we invested our lives in eternal ways? What if instead of worshiping celebrity and coveting money, we lived meek lives of generosity? What if instead of feeling entitled to everything and and proud of who we are and how much we can gain, we embraced genuine humility? The result, instead of empty promises, we'll be given eternal rewards. I know it'll be a little weird and, and, and this isn't the way that everybody else is doing things. Might not even be the way your spouse is doing things. And yet this is the life that God has called us to lead. We will likely be outcasts. The Bible tells us that in most in, in many places. Uh, not just one. If you're going to be like Jesus, if you're going to follow him, you will be rejected. And yet being an outcast for Jesus sounds like a good place to be.